Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life in that room seemed to be occurring beneath the sea. Time flowed past indifferently above us. Hours and days had no meaning. It's a rather sort of bleak-looking six- or seven-storey apartment block with a big central glass-panelled door. And Giovanni's room is on the ground floor at the end of a dark corridor. The romanticism of escaping anywhere, escaping your home, to go somewhere where you will be accepted, he realised suddenly as you would if you were spending Christmas in prison, without any money, without any relatives, without any family, that there is no romance about this escape to Paris, really. I stand at the window of this great house in the south of France as night falls, the night which is leading me to the most terrible morning of my life. That's the first line of Giovanni's Room by the novelist, essayist, playwright and civil rights activist James Baldwin, the boy preacher from Harlem who became, in the early 60s, one of the most photographed and most recognisable men in the world. Giovanni's Room was his second novel and ranks alongside his other masterpieces, the essay collections Notes of a Native Son and Nobody Knows My Name, his long essay The Fire Next Time, and the novels Go Tell It on the Mountain and Another Country. The critic James Wood has called it not only one of the most exquisite novels of the last 30 years, but a feat of fire-breathing, imaginative daring. Giovanni's Room is set in Paris with an all-white cast, but it is also about America and race and about the universal search for identity, love and freedom. As Colm Toybean has written, Baldwin held up an unsparing mirror so that the stained soul of his country could catch a glimpse of itself, a glimpse as penetrating, risky, truthful and disturbing as the glimpse of lost and wasted love offered in Giovanni's room. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and today I'm going to explore Paris, where James Baldwin lived and loved, visiting the stones, the streets, the cafes, the bars, the hotels and the rooms that inspired his extraordinary novel. 
And right now I'm sitting outside the historic cafe of Les Deux Magots, the cafe where Hemingway, Camus, Sartre, de Beauvoir, Joyce and Brecht have all come to drink and write and meet each other. And I'm sitting outside with our guest for today's episode, the novelist, essayist, playwright and short story writer, Carol Phillips. Kaz, welcome. Thank you. Carol Phillips was born on St. Kitts and grew up in Leeds. He has written 11 novels. Crossing the River won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize and was shortlisted for the 1993 Booker Prize. A Distant Shore was longlisted for the Booker Prize and won the 2004 Commonwealth Writers' Prize. And Dancing in the Dark won the 2006 Penn Open Book Award. He is the recipient of many awards and fellowships, a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and the Royal Society of the Arts, and he has taught at universities around the world. He is currently Professor of English at Yale University. Kaz, in your short story, Growing Pains, you describe being completely overwhelmed by Baldwin's prose when you read him at the age of 18. And then just five years later, you met Baldwin in France for the first time. What are your memories of encountering him for the first time? Well, first of all, it was a very bizarre transformation from reading an author to meeting an author because I'd never met an author before. I was trying myself at that age to become a writer or dreaming of becoming a writer. So to actually meet somebody who you'd not only read and admired but also written about in university exams was um, exciting and a little terrifying. But he put me at ease and he didn't make me feel in any way awkward. But I think the awkwardness was all on my part. And what was it? that completely overwhelmed you about reading him initially? Well, there's something about Baldwin's prose that is very insistent. Um, it's both melodic and very, um, obviously, eloquent, but it has a sort of biblical pattern to it, which comes, I think, from the fact that he was a child preacher. You know, his English is very much the English of the King James Bible, which is in many ways preaching at you. So you're both, in a sense seduced and instructed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He is an extraordinary stylist, and we'll be talking more about that today. Now, the reason we're sitting outside Les Deux Magots is that when Baldwin moved to France in 1948, he, he bought a one-way flight from New York to Paris with, with essentially the rest of his money. I think he had $40 left in his pocket. That's right. And he came here to Les Deux Magots, which is this beautifully decorated, there's lots of bright warm lights, mirrors on the wall, it's a lovely historic looking cafe. Inside having lunch were Jean-Paul Sartre and Richard Wright who were meeting the two men who were founding the magazine Zero and they knew that Baldwin was arriving and went to to meet him at the Gare des Invalides and brought him straight here. Um, And this would have been his first sight of Paris, this, this square where we're sitting now. It's a big open space dominated by the Church of Saint-Germain-des-Prés with um, very typically French um, boulevards leading off in different directions. Now, Richard Wright, we should talk a little about him because, well, I read in your um, non-fiction work, The European Tribe, that it was reading his novel, Native Son, on the beach in Los Angeles that really committed you to becoming a writer yourself. And he was something of a mentor to Baldwin, wasn't he? He was. I think that perhaps for the same reasons that... Um Richard Wright was somebody who was a mentor and was a a role model for Baldwin and maybe in some ways it was the same for me because 
it's, it's, it's a very simple thing. I'd never really read a book by a successful black writer. And I think um, at the time when I read Wright, I was in Los Angeles, but I was a student still in England. And books by black authors, American or otherwise, African, Caribbean, were not on the syllabus. So we were not offered the opportunity to read books by people, if you like, who looked like you. And I think Baldwin, back in the 1940s in New York, um, similarly, would not probably have been encouraged to read books by black authors. Richard Wright published Native Son in 1940, and he became a huge bestseller. He became one of the biggest selling authors in America. But he felt a disaffection with the United States. So in 1946, he effectively moved to Paris. Shortly before he moved, though, he had helped the young Baldwin, who had sought him out, to win a fellowship a $500 fellowship which enabled Baldwin to effectively at least get on the bottom rung of a writing career. So I think it's probably um, understandable that when Baldwin felt whatever anxiety he felt, and I'm sure we'll discuss it, that made him feel he wanted to move to Paris, he was very much keen to seek out his mentor, the man who had helped him. And perhaps that's even why he chose Paris, that Richard Wright had shown a, a way of escaping to yes. Europe. Um, he certainly helped Baldwin initially find a room in a hotel nearby here called the Hotel de Rome. And Baldwin quickly settled into this, what he later called the American colony, which was assembled roughly where we are now, around Saint-Germain-des-Prés. And he says at one point in one essay that he wrote that... Um, this, this area, Saint-Germain-des-Prés, has become transformed on spring, summer and fall nights into a replica very nearly of Times Square. So we, it's, it's exciting to picture the Americans sort of milling around here. Yeah, I think it was um, a, a very much a village atmosphere, uh, an atmosphere in which people knew each other, French intellectuals, writers, artists, mingling quite freely with the Americans who were in Paris at the time, um, the Americans, Saul Bellow, Philip Roth, Truman Capote, almost like a finishing school in some way. You know, the, you, you come to Paris. And it was a very exciting time after the war because everything was beginning new, uh, particularly in Paris, which one has to remember had been occupied during yes. the war. So it was a rebirth, a cultural, artistic rebirth, but also, if you, if you like, somehow in partnership with these American expatriates who were probably also harking back in a sort of nostalgic way to the Paris of Hemingway and Fitzgerald and, and, a, and a previous generation of American writers who had made this their home. Absolutely. I think it was also... There's a tremendous romance that I think Americans in the 20th century have had for Paris. Um, it's been certainly a part of the narrative of black American involvement in Paris, going back to after the First World War, the emergence of Josephine Baker, Sidney Bechet and other artists who found a home here that they thought was free of racial discrimination or less pressure of racial discrimination. Well we'll talk a bit more about the, the kind of uh, milieu of those Americans in Paris but before we move on from this cafe let's introduce the narrator of Giovanni's Room who is one of these Americans in Paris. Unusually for Baldwin, he's a, he's a white character. He's a tall, blonde, athletic, white American football player, we understand. Can you introduce us to this character of David, the narrator of Giovanni's Room? Yes, David is a kind of archetypal 
American, somewhat privileged East Coast Protestant. You know, he, he is who you would, you know, central casting would choose a, a sort of Charlton Heston figure to play the part. Oh, these days, you know, a Brad Pitt, perhaps, right, yes. you know. I think I just aged myself. <laughs> he, um, he represents everything that's supposed to be good and innocent and pure in American life. He's went to a good school. He's, his mother died when he was very young. He was raised by his father, raised properly. He has a fiance. Uh, who he met in a bar on yes, Saint-Germain-de-Prés. Yeah, and they are planning, you know, a life eventually back in America with 2.4 children. And so he represents everything that is, you know, the picture postcard of the American young educated East Coast man. Absolutely. Plus the fact that in one of the opening pages, Baldwin has him say, I am too various to be trusted. And we realize that there's, some, there's something here which is preying on the inside of uh, his mind. Well, I think if we think about what brings Americans to Paris, yes, it was here to find a cultural milieu. Yes, it was here to mix with other artists. Yes, it was here to have some excitement. But um, often people leave home because they're running from something inside of themselves that perhaps they can't express at home. And I think we have a sense quite early on with David that this journey to Paris um, in, involves something that we sense quite early on is nagging at him that perhaps he wouldn't be able to express or explore in America. But I think it's a very common trait of those who leave home to go to other countries. Absolutely. I was then living on the top floor of a ludicrously grim hotel on the Rue de Bac, one of those enormous, dark, cold and hideous establishments in which Paris abounds that seem to breathe forth in their airless, humid, stone-cold halls the weak light, scurrying chambermaids and creaking stairs, an odour of gentility long, long dead. Well, we're standing now outside the Hotel Pont Royal uh, on the Rue de Bac. And this, we think, is the model for the Grand Hotel du Bac that uh, Baldwin describes in one of his essays. Now, this hotel, it's got a big revolving door at the front, a very ornate frontage with relief sculptures of bunches of grapes and vine leaves, and a big kind of masonry awning over the, uh, over the doorway. He has a great line in them. <laughs> Uh, that essay, Our Question of Identity, where he says, the sordid French hotel room, so admirably detailed by the camera, becomes a room positively hostile to romance once it is oneself and not Jean Gabin who lives there. <laughs> that description is so awful, isn't it? But, um, but actually the hotel looks really rather smart now and very comfortable. So I, I think something has happened in the last 50 years to spruce it up. But it was here that he had two traumatic experiences staying in a in a room here. At one point, he took the sheets off his bed in his hotel room here, tied them to a water pipe running through the room and attempted to hang himself. And in fact, you know, suicide had been something that he'd considered more than once, wasn't it? Um, what was it, do you think, that Baldwin was running away from when he came to Paris? Well, one has to go back to his upbringing, really. He grew up the eldest 
son in a family of nine children um, in Harlem, where he was born in 1924. And it was a very Christian, very strict family upbringing. And Baldwin, by the age of 14, 15, realized that preaching and going to the pulpit wasn't for him. He loved reading, he loved literature, and he very early decided he wanted to be a writer. Um, he left the church, much to the dismay of his family. He left school and uh, his stepfather had died. And so he moved down to Greenwich Village and became involved in uh, a, a rather bohemian uh, environment, began to write articles, short stories, met Richard Wright, but also became aware of his own sexuality and his attraction not just for men and women. So I think a combination of the sexual, racial politics, a combination of that with leaving the church and the disappointments that he perhaps felt he was visited upon his family, I think all of that contributed to him feeling that he needed to get out of the American atmosphere, the American environment, mm -hmm. and go to a place where he could discover himself without feeling those familial pressures or without feeling those social pressures. And so Paris became the destination. That makes, that makes total sense. And, and there was also an incident, wasn't there, just two years before he came to Paris in 1946, when his, his friend Eugene Worth yes. jumped off the George Washington Bridge and, and took his own life. And yes, it's a very, it's a very important uh, part of uh, the narrative because Eugene Worth was feeling the same pressures that he was feeling as a young black man in America at the time. Whatever ambitions and desires young Eugene felt were being thwarted and America was not going to nourish his development, Baldwin was feeling the same way. Unfortunately, Eugene did commit suicide and decided there was no way forward in America. And I think that sense of despair, which his friend felt and acted upon, was something that Baldwin feared. If he stayed in America, he might follow the same path. And of course, it didn't fully disappear once he came to France, because as you said, you know, in this very hotel, um, he attempted to commit suicide. And he has his character in David in Giovanni's room as a point where he's walking along the Seine, looking at the river, thinking of the suicides and, and, you know, thinking of those thoughts. Now, the other incident which happened in this hotel is this L'affaire du drap de lit, which Baldwin described as the affair of the bedsheet. And, and what was that, Kaz? Well, he had a friend, an American friend, who was visiting and he brought a bedsheet from his hotel. His friend brought the bedsheet. Uh, one of the reasons was that the hotel wasn't changing Baldwin's sheets enough. <laughs> and so he'd already mentioned to him that he was fed up with the dirty sheets. So he brought a sheet from the hotel he'd been staying in, gave it to Baldwin, and he put it on his bed. The previous hotel um, sent the police to say, you know, something had been stolen from their hotel. They arrested Baldwin, put him in prison. He felt uh, as you would, you know, he was in prison over Christmas. He, they took his belt, his shoelaces, all the humiliating things that um, he was probably fearing in America, to be quite honest, you know, that was, were happening to young black people. Um, suddenly found himself in a Parisian prison in a state where it was an absurd charge, of course. 
But I think the, the reason that the essay he later wrote about the incident is called Equal in Paris is because it was the beginning of an awakening where he realized he's not equal in Paris. It's, it's part of the crushing of the myth, the romanticism of escaping anywhere, escaping your home to go somewhere where you will be accepted. He realized suddenly, as you would if you were spending Christmas in prison, without any money, without any relatives, without any family, that there is no romance about this escape to Paris, really. Luckily, he did manage to get word to a contact and he was, he was released just a few days before New Year, of December 1949. He arrived back at this hotel to be thrown out of it, so they didn't want him back. And this is very similar to the, the kind of opening incident of Giovanni's room, where David says that uh, it was during his second year in Paris when he had no money, and on the morning of the evening that he meets Giovanni, I'd been turned out of my bedroom. Mm -hmm. So let's carry on walking and talk about that first meeting between David and Giovanni. Jacques was aware, I was aware, as we pushed our way to the bar. It was like moving into the field of a magnet or like approaching a small circle of heat, of the presence of a new barman. He stood, insolent and dark and leonine, his elbow leaning on the cash register, his fingers playing with his chin, looking out at the crowd. It was as though his station was a promontory and we were the sea. Now, a few days after Baldwin was released from the Palais de Justice, he was telling the story of the saga of the Drap de Lis um, at one of his favourite bars, La Reine Blanche, the White Queen, which is just near where we first met this morning, mm. Les Deux Magots. And it was while he was there that he met um, the love of his life, Lucien Happersberger, who was 17 years old at the time uh, and from Switzerland. And in fact, the novel Giovanni's Room is dedicated to Lucien. Kaz, can you describe it? What was Lucien like? You, you knew him personally, I think. I met Lucien much later in the uh, 1980s, towards the end of Jimmy's life. Uh, Lucien was a painter, or oh, he became a painter and an art dealer. And he spent some time as well in the 60s working for, uh, for Jimmy in New York as, as his manager and assistant. But the Lucien who Jimmy met in 1949, as you say, in the bar, was uh, a young man who had escaped a rather middle-class life in Switzerland, run away from his parents to try to reinvent himself in, in Paris, um, like the Americans, like, you know, like everybody else who consider themselves creative and artistic. He was young, though. He was 17. He appeared to Jimmy to be lonely. Jimmy was in his mid-twenties. Um, but they struck up an instant friendship, um, and a friendship which lasted the whole of Baldwin's life. Well, that night when they first met at La Reine Blanche, they then moved on to another bar, the Fiac, or the Carriage, which was where we're standing now, on the Rue du Cherche Midi. It was number four, and what is now um, a rather smart-looking print and sort of poster shop, above which you can see an older building, and I suspect that was the original frontage of... Le Fiac. And these two bars were two of Baldwin's favourites. They were two of the kind of gay-friendly bars in, in Paris at the time. And the meeting between David and Giovanni in Giovanni's room 
happens at a bar, which seems to be a kind of mixture of these two locations. In the novel, David is looking for somewhere to stay, he's looking for more money. He meets an old friend of his called Jacques, an aging Belgian-American businessman, on uh, the Rue de Grenelle, which we've just walked down, and then they come on to Jacques' favourite bar, run by Guillaume, which we can imagine is, is right here. So, Kaz, can you, can you describe this? This is one of the great moments in the book, isn't it? The meeting between David and Giovanni. Can you describe what happens there? Yes, I mean, I think it is important that David, although he's a white, all-American, East Coast, well-educated man, it's quite important that at the very beginning when we meet him, he's trying to borrow money from Jack, which speaks to the kind of hand-to-mouth existence that they all had, irrespective of uh, their background. But Jack agrees to give him the, I think it was 10,000 francs, and the meeting goes well, and so they go on to a bar, and they go on to what, as you quite rightly say, is a, a kind of gay-friendly bar. It doesn't mean the, the clientele was exclusively gay, but it allowed and, if you like, uh, tolerated a certain extravagance of behaviour. Um, and Baldwin has ways in the novels where he talks about the flamboyance and um, how people besported themselves in here. Um, in the bar, David spots um, a young man and they begin to talk and Jacques moves away and talks to Guillaume, who is the owner of the bar, and in that sense um, engineers a situation in which David can talk to this young, very attractive southern Italian boy called Giovanni, and David is immediately drawn in by the magnetism of this young man, even though they come from different parts of the world, and clearly there's what we would just call a spark between uh -huh. them. Uh -huh. it's, a, it's a kind of kind of theatrical situation, isn't it? That, where um, David describes the kind of the regulars at the bar, almost like a, a kind of chorus watching what's going on. And he says at one point, it was as if they were the elders of some strange and austere holy order and were watching me in order to discover by means of signs I made, but which only they could read, whether or not I had a true vocation. And there's, a, there's another moment where it says that these, everyone was on the lookout and they saw something begin in this meeting with Giovanni, and now they were going to keep watching until it ended. I think that's that's. I think that's very critical to what's going on at this moment. It's about vigilance. It's about looking for signs, because obviously there's been something that Jacques and the others have spotted in David, and they're almost engineering a situation in which they can test him. They can see if he really is going to have that conversation. They're looking at his body language. So yeah, it's a, it is a very theatrical scene um, and it's beautifully described. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And also as well, at the same time as this joyous and, and wonderful moment of love at first sight, Baldwin also lets us know that this is also doomed at the same moment. You know, we know from the first pages of the book that Giovanni is going to die. Mm. Uh, we know that he's going to be executed by the guillotine, which of course was being used in France until 1977, mm. I mean, decades after this novel is set. Um, and so something is gonna go terribly wrong with this relationship. And that's another element of the watching till the end. You know, we're, we as readers are sort of waiting to see what's going to happen. Just while we're here, 
it's worth maybe just recapping, you know, what's um, the differences between France and America in the late 1940s, where in France it was not illegal to be gay, although, as David points out in the novel, it does not constitute a crime, but it's nevertheless regarded with extreme disapprobation by the populace. Um, whereas in America it was still a felony in every US state and would remain so until 1962, punished by prison or hard labor. And unbelievably, consensual same-sex relationships in America were only legalized across the country in 2003. So that's a real difference between America and France at the time, isn't it? It is a huge difference, and I think one of the reasons that people came to France was because of feeling claustrophobic, feeling oppressed, feeling that there was not just um, moral disapproval, there was legal disapproval of their quote-unquote lifestyle in the United States. Um, I think the novel makes it clear that in France, um, homosexuality is not accepted by everybody in a way that is romantic and easy. Um, that's part of this vigilance, it's part of looking, it's part of seeing how somebody is behaving, seeing how they're dressed. Um, the novel is full of references to people who are acting effeminately, who are moving. So there's still a sense of judgment in France, but what there isn't is this sense of a, a legal barrier to living a lifestyle. Well, after this momentous first meeting with Giovanni, David, Giovanni, Guillaume and Jacques stumble out of uh, the bar at five o'clock in the morning and crowd into a taxi to go looking for breakfast. So we'll catch a taxi too and follow them over the river. Nothing moved on the river. Barges were tied up along the banks. The island of the city widened away from us, bearing the weight of the cathedral. Beyond this, dimly, through speed and mist, one made out the individual roofs of Paris, their myriad squat chimney stacks, very beautiful and very coloured, under the pearly sky. Mist clung to the river, softening that army of trees, softening those stones, hiding the city's dreadful corkscrew alleys and dead-end streets. We're on the north side of the Seine now, and it's really noticeable how these big boulevards are, are kind of wider and, and, and broader than the area around Saint-Germain, where we've just come from, isn't it? It's, uh, it's just a very different atmosphere on this side of the river, isn't it? It's, mm. a, it's a little more uh, stately, yes. if you like, uh, a little more regal in some way. Um, which is perhaps how it should be. The, you know, the artists congregate in the place that looks like a village that has higgledy-piggledy streets and full of cafes. Now, when David and Giovanni get out of their taxi, the Lesalles that Baldwin knew was still, a, was still a maze of choked boulevards and impassable side streets piled high with food, leeks, onions, cabbages, oranges, apples, potatoes, cauliflowers. Les Halles was uh, known after the Zola novel as Le Ventre de Paris, the belly of Paris. And these were the big market halls where the fresh food was dispersed throughout the city. Uh, they were called the halls because uh, there were these big iron and glass pavilions full of mountains of food, which were only finally demolished in 1973. So Baldwin would have known them well. 
Now today those halls have gone, but we're in their sort of modern reincarnation. Les Halles is still a great centre of commerce. It's now a Westfield, and it's an extraordinary building. It looks like we're sort of standing inside of an oyster shell. <laughs> yes, um, it does. But it's still, in a, in a way, this area, despite the fact that it is a Westfield shopping mall, basically, it still has all the confusion and all the traffic and all the sense that it's a hub, you know, yes, which Les Halles was. It was a hub, it was a crossroads, it was a place of commerce, um, a kind of Parisian destination. It, and it still feels like that. It does, you're right. Now, David and Giovanni are coming here for breakfast. They find a cafe on a narrow street on a strange, crooked corner um, in the morning sunlight, and they have white wine and oysters. And this is where, really, David starts to realise that he is falling in love. And, and this is one of the great themes of the novel, I think, Kaz. You know, what is Baldwin saying about the nature of falling in love and accepting that love in, in Giovanni's room? Well, I think it comes back to, uh, it's a novel about love, which was Baldwin's central theme. Um, and the idea which empowered most of Baldwin's work, and very clearly here, is that if one cannot face up to oneself and fall in love, then you'll never face life. And love becomes the central conceit of a person's ability to live a full an honest life. And now that love can manifest itself as love for a woman or love for a man. That's irrelevant. But it's just that capacity to submit. And, you know, look at the verb that we use when we talk about love, to fall in love, to let go of control. Um, and that's what's happening to David. He's falling. He's losing control slowly. So the move from the bar to the after hours place here at Les Halles is the opportunity for him to relinquish a bit more control and allow himself to face life, face himself. But already, you know, even at this moment where he's in the first moments of falling for Giovanni, there's, there's little details that Baldwin slips in that make you realise that David is feeling the sort of the trap closing around him at the same time. There's a bit where he's leaning on the bar in this cafe. I stared at the amber cognac and at the wet rings on the metal. Deep below, trapped in the metal, the outline of my face looked upward hopelessly. Um, Baldwin's so good, I think, at dropping in those little images that make you realise what's going on inside of And, and inside they're the always extremely visual. And in this novel, um, it comes back to the idea that I just said, it's always about facing yourself. He sees himself reflected in windows, he sees himself reflected there, and we'll get there, but at the very end of the novel, it's a mirror that he's looking yes. into. Yes. Um, so we get the echo of that, um, or we get the, the sense of that rippling through the novel, that same image. How can you face yourself? Absolutely. Well, finally, at this cafe, David and Giovanni managed to shake Jacques and Guillaume, who've been sort of crowding them, um, and they stumble out onto the Boulevard Sebastopol um, and catch a taxi towards perhaps the most crucial location in this novel, Giovanni's Room. So let's go and catch a cab ourselves and head off in that direction. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Bonjour, monsieur. Nation, s'il vous plaît. Oui. Because we've talked a little about uh, Lucien already, but in what ways are Giovanni and David based on Lucien and Jimmy? Um, not really. I think a lot of people assume, because the novel is dedicated to Lucien, that he is in some way an incarnation of Giovanni. I mean, obviously, he's a young man from southern Italy who is working in a bar or is found in a bar in the same way as when Jimmy met Lucien in 1949. It was in a similar kind of bar. But the interesting thing about the novel, really, is that there's a lot about Giovanni which reflects Jimmy himself. Because mm -hmm. Giovanni, as we'll see, as he begins to develop a relationship with David, is craving a certain type of domestic stability. Um, which I think Jimmy needed too and wanted. So, ironically enough, the character of Giovanni, I think, is in some ways closer to the spirit of Jimmy. Um, there's an element of David, which is also obviously Jimmy, which is an American in Paris. Mm -hmm. So, I think, in, in a curious way, Jimmy is partly David, and he's also partly Giovanni. He's partly the character who comes to Paris to try to rather unwittingly in some ways discover himself and he's also the person who is courageous enough to have already faced himself which is Giovanni mm -hmm. and be free to love and want the security of being with somebody who has also faced themselves. It's a very um, interesting division I think of the two halves of Baldwin himself. Mm. It's interesting that the, the epigraph to Giovanni's room is taken from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. He quotes, I am the man, I suffered, I was there. 
And really, that could apply to both David and Giovanni. Absolutely. It? And it certainly applies to Baldwin himself, not just in his emotional life, as we've talked about, and, and the despair he occasionally plunged into, but it certainly uh, reflects the fact that Baldwin himself was courageous enough. Baldwin himself was always um, a man who had the courage to face up to himself. It didn't come naturally. I mean, we have to fight for these things. But he did face up to himself, mm. and he faced up to a lot of things which I think would have made other people in his situation very uncomfortable. I mean, one element of autobiography in, in, in this relationship is the fact that we, we know from the beginning that it's temporary, that it's not going to be permanent. And, and that was something of a trait in Baldwin's own relationships, wasn't it? A lack of permanence. He has Jacques in, in the novel say at one point, nobody can stay in the Garden of Eden. I wonder why. And it's true that Baldwin and Lucien separated after a relatively short time from a physical relationship. Yes, I mean, I think that, you know, people, have, his biographers and others have written about Baldwin's, what we might call, um, emotional life, his romantic life, which did tend to be a little chaotic because he moved around a lot and he did have the love and support of Lucien, even if they were not together as a couple, Lucien became a permanent feature and a permanent mm -hmm. presence in his life. But he always sought and desired the kind of domestic stability which I think most writers seek and desire so that they can get on with their work. Baldwin didn't have that. Um, so yes, there is an element in the novel which does reflect that autobiographical desire that he felt mm. to have the peace to get on with life. And that's what Giovanni is also craving. Mm -hmm. Driving through Paris at the moment, its grand boulevards and streets, the city and the novel is presented in lots of different ways, isn't it? But Baldwin's very good at describing the city, going through the seasons and changing over the course of the year. But also, you know, as the relationship sort of changes and, and starts to crumble, so does the sort of description of Paris and there are descriptions of the crumbling stones of Paris, of the sort of rot beneath the streets. And, in this very taxi drive that um, Giovanni and David take at the very start of their relationship, at one point Giovanni's looking out of the window and he says, look at the garbage of this city. Where do they take it? I don't know where they take it, but it might very well be my room. And it's as if his room, Giovanni's room, is a kind of nexus for all the sort of dirt and, and, and rubbish of the city flowing into this one spot where we're heading now. Life in that room seemed to be occurring beneath the sea. Time flowed past indifferently above us. Hours and days had no meaning. In the beginning, our life together held a joy and amazement which was newborn every day. Beneath the joy, of course, was anguish, and beneath the amazement was fear. But they did not work themselves to the beginning until our high beginning was aloes on our tongues. By then, anguish and fear had become the surface on which we slipped and slid, losing balance, dignity, and pride. 
Now, we don't know exactly where Giovanni's room is located in the novel. We know it's near the Place de Nation, near the Port de Vincennes, in the east edge of Paris. Not far, as Giovanni points out at one point, from the zoo, the Parc Zoologique. Guillaume, the owner of the bar where David and Giovanni meet, says that Giovanni lives in a dreadful street near Nation, among all the dreadful bourgeoisie and their pig-like children. Uh, and Giovanni himself says that it's out, far out. It's almost not Paris. Um, well, we found a street near Nation, which is a kind of stand-in for Giovanni's room. It's called the Rue de Lagny, and like the description in the book, it's a, it's a wide, respectable, rather than elegant street. Now, today, the street is a bit of a hodgepodge of buildings. as constructions from every decade of the 20th century around us. But we're standing in front of an apartment block, which is maybe similar to the one that Giovanni's room would have been in. I think this probably represents... What the street would yeah, have been. Yeah, my guess would yeah. be that this rather grim-looking building would have been typical. It's a rather sort of bleak-looking six- or seven-storey apartment block with a big central glass panel door and Giovanni's room is is on the ground floor at the end of a dark corridor um, coming off the vestibule and it's a former maid's room a small room at the back that looks over the courtyard and this room where Giovanni lives is based on an actual room that Baldwin knew right Kaz yes he did have uh, a relationship at a certain time with a, uh, a young Frenchman who lived in a single room in this area, a room that much like the room as described in the novel is kind of scruffy, dirty, uh, streaked. I think he says the walls, uh, one of the walls is streaked with paint, wallpaper on the floor, uh, a kind of temporary abandonment to the place, uh, yet of course occupied. And of course, um, probably the type of room that is okay for one person but as soon as you move somebody else in the tension the pressure mounts and um, it's almost guaranteed to be a, a kind of zone of intimacy but also a zone of conflict and i think when jimmy was uh in this room with his with the, i think this was the first sort of relationship he had after breaking up with lucien and this frenchman was so nervous that he would lose Baldwin back to Lucien, but he would sometimes lock him into the room when yes, he left in the Yes, it became a kind of uh, imprisonment in this uh, small room. I can't help but imagine that when it came to the writing of the novel a couple of years after the relationship had disintegrated, that the idea of the small room um, would have come quite easily to Baldwin because he can't possibly have forgotten the trauma of being yeah. locked in by his lover um, until he came back from work at the end of the day. Um, this, this novel went through a couple of different titles before it, it settled on its present one. What, one of the earliest was One for My Baby. Uh, which... I, I think it's probably a, a, a fine decision not to use that title. <laughs> um, but he settled on Giovanni's room and why do you think he made that the title. Why is, um, why is this room such an important location in the book? One of the ideas, I think, which is informing the book all the time is the idea of home. Right from the very beginning, we have 
much description right at the beginning of the novel of David's home, where he comes from, what his family is like, um, where he went to school, um, what America is like comes up. So the idea of home and the idea of a place of safety, uh, a place of refuge, is a, a recurrent theme throughout the book. And some academics and critics have subsequently begun to look upon the room as a sort of closet, you know, in terms of coming out of the closet, in terms of, you know, thinking in terms of the way in which such spaces have been turned into a mm. metaphor mm. for, you know, declaring oneself. So there's all sorts of reasons why I think Giovanni's Room is a terrific title. It's great. And Baldwin does so many things with this room, doesn't he? I mean, in one way, it's a, it's a safe space for this relationship to begin, and then it's where their love first blossoms. But increasingly, it, it, it becomes claustrophobic, and, and David feels like he's living under the water when he's in this room, like the walls are closing in. He describes the courtyard outside these two windows as encroaching on the windows as if it had muddled itself up with a jungle. Um, and there's one particularly sort of, sort of nightmarish moment where he, he sees the ceiling as a sort of low-lying cloud from which fiends are speaking, and he describes the bare yellow bulb in the centre of the ceiling hanging like a diseased and undefinable sex in the centre of the room. And it's like the room is sort of not only closing in, but also becoming a kind of extension of this relationship that's failing around them. It is, because it, once they come back to this room, the only place we really see the drama of the couple unfolding is the room. Mm. It's not like David and Giovanni have a social life where they go out for dinner with a, another couple or they, you know, have jobs so they meet after, you know, they, they, they are very much living the kind of emotional topography, the ups and downs of their lives in this room. Mm. Um, so the room does become, in a sense, hostile. Um, mm. That place of safety can become a terrifying mm. place when things are going wrong. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that the, the reason things go wrong and the, and the kind of the kind of situation that Baldwin is exploring in this novel are the consequences of sexual dishonesty if you're not honest with yourself or other people about how you feel. And, and on that point, the biographer, David Leeming, says that this is a novel about safety as opposed to honour. Does that ring true for you? It is it's very much a novel about... I mean, this is a, 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 a somewhat... Um, it may sound like an exaggeration, but it's a novel about American cowardice. <laughs> it's a novel not just about David's inability to face up to himself, but it's a novel about Americans and their inability to face up to themselves because one of the really deep themes of this novel is the way in which Americans exist most comfortably in a safe zone of kind of pretend innocence. They're not being true to themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, this novel is about a man who cannot really face up to himself in America um, and when he comes to France he still can't face up to himself. Giovanni represents a kind of freedom that Americans can never have and one of the reasons why Giovanni is so down, if you like, on America is I think he recognizes very quickly that David is from a place where people hide their emotions and run from something as difficult as love and obviously 
what Giovanni wants and what he needs is the kind of love that he feels David yeah. can offer him if only David would be strong yeah. enough. Yeah. And their relationship reaches a kind of low point where they're both aware that David is pulling away from Giovanni and Giovanni is reluctant to confront him about it because he's scared of David telling the truth, which is that he is leaving. Um, David has finally managed to get some money from his father in America and he says um, Giovanni knew that I'd got this money and that I was not going to use it to help Giovanni, who had done so much to help me. I was going to use it to escape his room. We want to be going that way. There's one here, Henry. So we're back in the cab now, heading to have some lunch at the Café Tournon on the Rue de Tournon, which Baldwin knew well when he was in Paris, didn't he, Kaz? Well, when he first arrived in Paris, there was a small expatriate community of African-American writers, largely under the, I guess we could say, leadership of Richard Wright. But there were others, um, very quickly, Chester Himes and William Gardner Smith. And the place that they tended to congregate was Café Tournon. It didn't mean that they were not to be seen at um, the Dermago or Café Floor or any of the other familiar haunts in Saint-Germain-de-Prés, but it just seemed to be a, a place where the black Americans congregated. So Baldwin would sometimes be seen there. And what happened to Baldwin's relationship to Richard Wright? Because it, it soured while he was living in Paris, didn't it? It did. Baldwin, um, when uh, Jimmy arrived in, in Paris, he'd obviously established a reputation writing for a few journals such as the Partisan Review and commentary essays and book reviews and the odd article. And he very quickly continued that tradition of, of writing these pieces, uh, one of which he wrote for the magazine Zero here in Paris called Everybody's Protest Novel, which was uh -huh. about Richard Wright's work and particularly about Native Son. Uh, Wright took it as an attack on his work. Baldwin didn't really, or claimed he didn't see it as that. The, the essence of the argument was that writers such as Wright and other black writers shouldn't necessarily be writing novels of protest and writing novels in which racial themes were squarely at the heart. They should be trying to do something that uh, was slightly more universal in its appeal. I think as the elder writer, uh, there was a sense that Wright felt betrayed. So Baldwin started to go to the Tournon less often. Uh -huh. And he tended to mix much more frequently with um, a crowd which was essentially white. He moved between the two groups, but I think, you know, Richard Wright being the leader, as it were, of the black Americans, probably, you know, made it clear that he didn't feel too comfortable with what uh, the newly arrived youngster had written. Uh-huh. And it feels like, a, you know, that Baldwin was very grateful to Wright for his mentorship and, and path he'd laid for him, but that you know, he needed to move beyond that to become the writer he wanted to be. I mean, he said in that essay, um, Everybody's Protest Novel, that the business of the novelist is revelation, a journey towards a more vast reality. And Baldwin liked to quote what Henry James called perception at the pitch of passion as his kind of 
you know, what he was aiming to do. Well, I think, you know, Baldwin was trying to find his own voice. He was yeah. trying to, you know, throw down a marker, distinguish himself um, from others. No writer likes to be seen as merely, you know, imitating or copying the person that went before them or, even more difficult, the person that not only went before them but they regarded as a mentor. So, in a sense, he had to declare his difference from Wright, but he wanted to do so in a way that uh, didn't damage the friendship. He would have preferred, I'm sure, to do so in a way which meant that he didn't lose the, the trust and the support of Richard Wright, but of course Wright did feel betrayed. Mm. In later years, Baldwin wrote about Wright again, and you know, he, even at the end of Baldwin's life in the 1980s, he was preparing to write the introduction to some newly published Wright novels. He always professed that he had an affection for Wright as a person and an admiration for him as a writer. So um, it's just unfortunate, I think, that the argument between them developed into some kind of a schism in the friendship and mm -hmm. Baldwin was seen less often at the Tournant. I mean, having said that about his you know, wider mission as an artist and, and moving beyond the the limits of, a, of writing a protest novel, as he named it. It's true, though, that Giovanni's Room was first published in 1956, which was the year that the civil rights movement in America was really starting to get moving. And, you know, given that Baldwin would become such a high-profile player in that movement, did, you know, does it surprise you that there are no black characters in this novel at all? No, not really, because I think um, what Baldwin was doing was he was trying to he was trying to find his territory. I mean, writers are very territorial animals. I mean, essentially, if you look at the career of most writers, they're essentially writing some version of the same book over and over again. And there is a connection, as, as I said, between his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, which has, incidentally, no white characters. Um, there's a very strong umbilical cord between that novel and this novel, Giovanni's Room, which has no black characters. So the themes which he was dealing with rose way up above race. Um, that was not his central theme. Later, when he did return to the United States in 1957, after the publication of Giovanni's Room, to become involved in the civil rights struggle. Obviously, questions of race, questions of the whole you know, system and apparatus of discrimination against black people in America became something he spoke about. But he largely spoke about that or wrote about it in nonfiction. Um, mm. His fiction did tend to deal with, certainly at this stage of his life, did tend to deal with the more important theme of identity, belonging, what it means to be an American, and more than anything, um, the price one pays if you're too afraid to love somebody. So we've stepped out of the Café Le Tournant now, and we're walking along the Rue de Tournant. Um, and this is another important location in the novel, because really the the moment that signals the end of David and Giovanni's relationship is when David's fiancée, Hella, returns from this trip she's made to Spain to kind of work out how she feels about marriage and about him. 
and he meets her at the Gare de Lyon in Paris and they come back here to her hotel on the Rue de Tournon where they, they kind of hole up and, and really David is sort of hiding from Giovanni here, isn't he? Well, he tries to rekindle his relationship with Hella. Hella has gone away actually to think about whether she's going to commit obviously to marriage and a full life with him and she comes back from her time in Spain um, excited to see him and David hides the secret of his relationship with Giovanni and his time in the room um, and tries to sort of overcompensate in a way by being overly affectionate and they're constantly in, in and out of each other's arms and but he's haunted by guilt um, and he's unable if you like to fully rekindle the love, the affection, the commitment that he felt to her, but he doesn't really know how to tell her. And then, inevitably, Paris being the small <laughs> village that it is in, in the sense of, you know, the bohemian world, uh, the two of them run into Giovanni. Yeah, well, so we're standing on the Rue de Tournon now opposite, well, actually a rather sort of exclusive-looking bookshop full of maps and very expensive-looking books in the window. They uh, stop in a, in a different kind of bookshop, not far from here, a, um, a regular bookshop where Hella pops in to buy a copy of something. And David realises he's standing behind Jacques, who turns round, sees him and says, where have you been? And at that moment, Giovanni enters the, the shop. And... There's a great description that David says, I felt him behind me, rather like how he feels him as he walks into mm -hmm. the bar at the beginning, standing stock still, staring, and felt in Hella's clasp in her entire body a kind of wild shrinking. And all this kind of pretense, this sort of hope that, you know, he'd managed to move beyond Giovanni and back to Hella, it, it kind of disappears in this moment, doesn't it? It does, because... He's essentially faced with the two sides of himself, the pretend fake performative side, which he now realises, fully realises, is Hella, and the reality, which he doesn't really know how to face anymore, which is Giovanni. And in that moment, it becomes abundantly clear to us, the reader, that David is at a sort of crossroads, as it were. Either he can go down the path and leave the bookshop with Giovanni and face up to what he really knows he is now, or else he can continue and leave the bookshop with Hella and continue the pretense. So we've come full circle now. We're standing outside the site of what was La Reine Blanche, one of the models for Guillaume's bar in Giovanni's room, which is now a rather smart wine shop. It's called Les Caves de la Mer Germaine. The space is a kind of tunnel stretching back into the block of buildings, and, and each wall of this tunnel is lined with uh, rather expensive-looking bottles of wine, a much smarter space than it would have been when Baldino was here. And this feels like a good moment to bring the novel full circle as well. What we've only mentioned in passing is that this novel is told through flashbacks, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a series of flashbacks which take place over the course of a single night uh, with David remembering scenes from his relationship with Giovanni. Yes, it has a present time structure, which is David in a house in the south of France that he and Hella 
have rented to get away from Paris and the confusion of Giovanni's presence and, you know, obviously to prevent them bumping into Giovanni and hopefully by moving to the south of France, Hella and David can make a new start. Um, but David is alone in the house at the beginning of the novel, remembering what has happened in Paris, including obviously the initial meeting in the bar and the affair with Giovanni and Hella's return. We know from the beginning that his relationship with Giovanni doesn't work out, his relationship with Hella doesn't work out, and so what are, what are the prospects for David at the end of this novel? David is alone in the south of France. What choices does he have? Uh, well, the choice he has is to either go back to Paris and face his life there without Giovanni, because we know Giovanni is going to be uh, executed in the morning, or he can go back to America and face his life there in America. We don't really know, I think, what he's going to do, but we know he has to make a huge decision at this stage. And there's a sense that, you know, here we are standing outside the bar where it all began, there's a sense that, um, you know, he could become one of these older men hanging around these bars, sort of getting trapped in this cycle yes. of sort of short flings with younger and younger which, men. Which is sort of what Jacques has suggested yeah. to him and what in the very beginning of the novel, the, the man who wandered into the bar like an apparition when he was first with Giovanni also was kind of suggesting that there is a sort of descent into a kind of clownish, performative, boy-on-the-streets of Paris future um, if he's not careful and if he's not honest with himself. So that is a, not a possibility that's also looming in the air. Early on in our conversation, you, you pointed out how this is a book about self-reflection and how mirrors and, and reflections are so important in it. One of the brilliant effects that Baldwin puts in, having the novel set across this single night of memory, is that as the night falls at the beginning of the novel, his, his reflection appears in the window. And now at the end of the novel, as the light rises, he watches his own reflection disappear before his eyes as if he himself is vaporizing somehow. And then he turns and looks at himself in the mirror. And I wondered, Kaz, might you read out this um, uh, paragraph about that moment? The body in the mirror forces me to turn and face it. And I look at my body, which is under the sentence of death. It is lean, hard and cold, the incarnation of a mystery. And I do not know what moves in this body what this body is searching, it is trapped in my mirror, as it is trapped in time and it hurries toward revelation. Thank you. I think that's such a brilliant passage because it, it shows that he is under a sentence of death just like Giovanni. It describes that alienation from the self that, that Baldwin has observed in this American expatriate group. And it shows that, you know, the project of the novel is to aim at revelation, but David's own revelation is a, is a life sentence. It's a, it's a doom for him for the rest he of his life. He is doomed. He's doomed in the same way that Giovanni's doomed, simply because he's never been able to be honest about himself. And again, one of the um, purposes of the novel opening with a reasonably long section about who David is in the United States of America is to show us that even before David came to Paris, 
he already had a very good idea of who he was because he'd had an affair, an encounter with a young boy called Joey, which he'd immediately tried to hide, lost the friendship, felt ashamed about. So he'd had some, not just an inkling, he'd had the experience of encountering who he was. So he was running away from himself. And that's, that's what's been held over him throughout the course of the novel. That's what Jacques is trying to say to him. That's what Giovanni is trying to say to him. You are running away from yourself. And now at the end of the novel, he's alone in the south of France. He has nowhere to run, but he has the revelation of what he's done. That burden is in a way heavier than the burden of execution. Bonjour. Avez-vous un portoir, s'il vous plaît? Exterior. So, Kaz, to finish, we're, we're sitting outside the Café de Flore, also on the Boulevard Saint-Germain, which is another of the incredibly historic cafes on this street. You know, this particular café, uh, you know, is famous as the haunt of Georges Bataille, Raymond Queneau, Pablo Picasso, Eugene Onesco, another kind of roll call of celebrity punters have been through this door. And it was a favorite of Baldwin's as well. And to finish off, let's talk about how this novel has fared since it was published. And one of the intriguing sort of stories about this novel is how many different people have attempted at one time or another to make a film adaptation out of Giovanni's yeah. You know, do you think that project will ever see the light of day? Well, I hope so, because it was Baldwin's greatest wish, actually, that the novel should be filmed. He wrote a screenplay himself um, for the novel. He was in conversation at various times with people as diverse as the British Trinidadian director, Horace Ovey, about doing a film. The, director Michael Rayburn um, with Fassbinder, yes, the German, and Michael Rayburn had got an agreement from both Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro that they wanted to be in the film, so there was a lot of electricity and a lot of talk around the film, and then in 2001, Merchant Ivory Productions in New York asked me if I wanted to be involved in writing a screenplay of the film too. I'm, I, I, I'm remain hopeful that somebody will make the film and I, I think a lot will depend, to be honest, um, on the family, on the Baldwin family themselves, who obviously they control the rights, they control the estate, so much depends on how they feel about it. Well, Kaz, it's been such a pleasure walking the streets of Paris with you today, discussing Baldwin and, and Giovanni's room. And, and to conclude, why do you think it has the power that it, it has? And, and, and why do we go back to it today as a great classic of mid-century literature? That's a very good question because it has endured. It's a very slim novel. It's only about 140 pages long. Um, it packs a punch. Structurally, it's a beautiful piece of work. Present time story, huge backstory. I think one of the reasons it survives is it taps into, I think, what everybody's greatest fear is, which is how to let go of one's the inner control that we have or we imagine we have over the narrative of our own lives 
and share, or even more dangerously, give to somebody else. Let somebody else take control of your life and, and uh, in a sense, give of yourself selflessly. And that's a universal problem. It's not going to go away. And Paris, Paris is always going to work for any song, for any film, for any movie. Paris works. Brilliant. Well, what a great way to finish and to say au revoir here on the streets of Paris. So, Kaz, thank you very much for discussing oh, Giovanni's room absolute today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, too. Many thanks to Carol Phillips, to Calliope Author Readings for the recording of James Baldwin reading from Giovanni's room, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with Jimmy himself. In the early 1960s, Lynn and Harry Schwartz, two Boston academics, persuaded a number of American authors to be recorded reading from their own works. Baldwin read extracts from Another Country and Giovanni's Room, from which we'll hear a section now. This is David's description of his formative adolescent encounter with his school friend, Joey. Joey raised his head as I lowered mine, and we kissed, as it were, by accident. Then, for the first time in my life, I was really aware of another person's body, of another person's smell. We had our arms around each other. It was like holding in my hand some rare, exhausted, nearly doomed bird which I had miraculously happened to find. I was very frightened. I'm sure he was frightened too, and we shut our eyes to remember it so clearly, so painfully tonight. Tells me that I have never for an instant truly forgotten it. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,